This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with yes, your hosts, sir. Ron and Chris. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, along with an exciting guest with a background in security and humans. We have Jenny Radcliffe. She's behind the Human Factor podcast and also Human Factor Security. Excited to have you on the show, Jenny. I'm excited to jump into a little bit of your background in psychology, deception, and just really learn more about you. Thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited for this episode. Social engineering has been something that's been in in my mind for years at this point. We had Chris had Nagy on the show uh, just a few episodes ago. But for everyone that doesn't exactly know who you are just yet, even though it seems like everyone should, could you give us a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So yeah, what I do and what the company does is we pr- we practice social engineering, but very specifically non-technical so psychological pen test is what we would call it to a client and I focus on the psychology and physical infiltration which is really where I started although we didn't call it physical infiltration Uh, and I hesitate to call it that now especially with a non-security audience because it sounds awful to say you know physical infiltration or physical penetration tester like but yeah I started so that's what the company does and I started out doing that really from when I was a kid in Liverpool just you know hung out with a gang of older cousins and family and their friends and we sort of stopped just short of criminal activity really I mean most of the time stopped short of it and I never thought it would turn into a career. I never thought there'd be this huge industry that not only understood what I did, but actually gave that kind of work some legitimacy. So that's kind of like the umbrella of what I do. And yeah, we have the Human Factor Security podcast. We have the company's Human Factor Security. There's also a few little YouTube videos soon to be added to. So we do those things. And that's what people kind of is the short version. But underneath that, uh, what we bring, because I had no technical, if you like, hacker skills, I I have, I sort of learned other things. And so from from a point of view of working with humans, understanding the way people are, I bring in a background of, of, yeah, like you said, of negotiation work, of of deception, science, and uh, linguistics and that type of thing. So, So what a lot of people don't, know in the business is that uh, I still teach consult and do a lot of work with those sort of I don't know what you call them sort of complementary skills but they help me a lot being a social engineer too fantastic so I wanted to take this in, in a bit of a different direction than the usual interviews that you do with folks because people are really interested in how to do social engineering your story and things like that but I wanted to tap into something really, really minute that I saw in your TEDx talk is you talked about using social engineering within your life and your family, maybe even for negotiations for your employers or with other people. 
how have you used your social engineering skills, not necessarily to manipulate, but to use those tools in your, your daily life, maybe in your family? So I suppose it's an interesting thing. Um, and I suppose it, the social engineering skills with the family, it's more the skills that make me, you know, able to be a social engineer that I would use. So, so let me elaborate on that. I taught negotiation for years and I was and still am, although to a lesser extent now because I'm, I'm sort of more known in security, do more work in security. For example, in negotiation training. And, and and some of the things that you learn when you when you do negotiation at a high level and at a critical sort of crisis level and, and, and criminal level is the way that you can create the desire to change things in someone's head, right? So what negotiation really is, for example, if we, if we go to negotiation first, because it, it makes sense, negotiation is a process of getting someone to move from the position that they hold to another position, right? Not necessarily agreement, but to the next um, sort of stage along the line. And it's all of the skills that come into that that gets you to be able to be a good negotiator. But of course, if you look at social engineering, what you're really trying to do in social engineering when we're dealing with people is more or less the same thing, right? So you're trying to get someone to come from a position of defense, perhaps, or a position of of having their um, guard up and watching out for, you know, being suspicious, if you like, to, to get them to trust you very quickly. So so that's the way that those types of things are linked. And then in my personal life, it works in all sorts of ways. And to give you examples of, you know, you know, I can see and hear where people are coming from. So I would use language uh, to, to sort of, like you say, it is manipulation, although, although I like to think not with any sort of real malintent, right. but to change people's minds. So it's everything from building rapport when there's a difficult um, situation. Um, you know, I recently had a lot of, spent a lot of time in, in the hospital, in the hospital system in the UK. And it's the ways that you can negotiate the best service that the person can give, even though they've had a bad day um, and you're not necessarily a priority for them. And, and I'll just be clear, I'm not talking about the the coronavirus, the COVID. It's just, just before all of that. But, you know, to get better um, than the average service that you might get, you know, so to, to sort of elevate yourself to something that's a priority in their brain or to get someone to want to help you uh, and to think it's their idea, Right. And then to walk away and not realize that you've done that. So so really, it's something that you, you don't really drop the techniques out of a professional setting. I can see something and, and work out how, if I just take a step back, and it's difficult to do that when it's emotional, but I can see a situation and think, this is how we'd change this situation. This is how we get this person's mind to move in a different direction. Um, to my benefit and 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 not to the de- not to the detriment of them. That sounds like a very convoluted answer. You probably just wanted an example of, you know, spotting a lie or something, right? With a no, that I think that was that was great because yeah, I I have three daughters, right? Mm-hmm. And so my three daughters are very different, and so sometimes I have to sort of coerce them into 
either you know doing something in on their to to their benefit like eating their vegetables or something like that and also uh, my middle daughter who's five now she's like she is lying all the time like it's like it's her favorite hobby you know and Mm. and it's not anything bad but just things things like that from like just the the home base standpoint is is something that i've always been curious about you know like how do you how do you like you said move people from one position to a position that might be to their benefit if they don't even know it it's very difficult though with family um it's difficult with anyone that you're very close to to even really read them so what we look for in in in, um, deception work is you establish a baseline for an individual and that means what they look and sound like when they're not under stress and have no reason to lie to you. So a person who's very animated, has a lot of maybe nervous energy, when they're under stress, that that they may become uh, still. They may sit back. Uh, some you know Someone who is, is normally very quiet starts to talk. You're looking for to establish a baseline of behavior. So the things that they do normally. And then what we look to assess is a change in the baseline due to a, basically a cognitive event. So what we say is when we lie, even us, even in a small way, we're asking our brain to do so many things. We're asking the brain to remember what the, the truth is, to ignore that, to create a new truth, uh, and then to stick to the facts of that truth. On top of that, what a person will do is watch the person observing them to see their reaction, which is one of the reasons that the old myth of eye contact, people avoid eye contact when they lie, is is just never proves to be true because uh, really what a liar tends to do, although there are no absolutes in it, but really what a liar tends to do is really watch very intently the person listening to them to see how they respond, right? So when we lie, we're asking an awful lot of our brain. And and, and and so it becomes difficult to focus and concentrate. So it knocks out certain other things. So, for example, our fine motor skills tend to be one of the first things that stop when we're in the middle of a, of a lie, mostly a lie with big consequences, by the way, but a complex lie. So people tend to put down, they stop doodling, they stop drinking. They might take constant sips of water, but they don't, do two things at once they get more still um it's part of the fight or flight and freeze mechanisms and so like it's really it's something that takes an awful lot of observation and you need to look at that baseline but when you know someone so well and you have family too i know that i know them so well it's hard to see um to notice all those tiny little changes right because you're seeing such a huge amount of information in every situation that we don't really see it so well if if we know the person that well plus we don't want to see it if it's a more consequential lie so we don't want to see to notice that you know your spouse is having an affair or that a teenager's maybe uh using drugs or something like that so we tend we're human too and our, and we try and not and block it out i think i think with little children it's difficult because often a lie is quite funny and is very mm-hmm. obvious right but i was in a situation with children and 
there had been a you know a dastardly deed and that there were three suspects and even after sort of 15 20 years in the business I couldn't pick it out I just couldn't pick, pick it out and and I actually called I have a friend of mine who, who I work with a lot on deception work between the two of us we will call it right most of the time you know look historically speaking looking back we were right and we could, it couldn't pick it either you know they're good liars kids yeah wow <laughs> so what about the other way around when you're the liar? Um, mm-hmm. Is there a negotiation process that you found helpful for you or maybe for uh, a client or someone that you're helping with social engineering for uh, changing the way that you fundamentally think and negotiating with yourself? So, so the advice for professional negotiations is you keep your integrity and you, your integrity. I can't say that word, you know. You, you know what? I'm only drinking tea, right? It's only, <laughs> it's only sort of 3 p.m. in the UK. But you keep your integrity, there we go, and you don't lie, ever. And actually, most people who are professional lie detectors work in deception, lie, well, I'm say most of them, but like a lot of the people who do professionally don't really lie very much, is my opinion. And the reason is, is because we know all of the tells, right? Right. <laughs> and and you know, yeah, I could say how I can tell that that's a lie. Of course, you know how to tell um, a great story and, and to fabricate a great deception, which is where it comes into social engineering. So it's it, it's in the details and the little things that you know convince people. But there is not like tricks to to do that in negotiation. So negotiation is a um, I always see it as a grown up side of the job. I see like when I do social engineering, particularly when I'm doing pen tests and doing all this, it's so much fun. Um, except when it isn't and someone sets a dog on me or something. But most of the time, it's a lot of fun. But when I do negotiation work, it tends to be for very serious consequences. And you shouldn't bluff and you shouldn't lie at all. You should be um, truthful and, and, and approach the whole thing like we're going to solve a problem. So I, I guess as a tip, what I would say is people approach any type of negotiation as this is your position and this is my position and it becomes adversarial and what you need to do is you need to kind of drop that whole view and try and look at it like there's a problem to be solved right we need we've got this set of objectives and this set of objectives how do we get to a situation where all of those objectives can be reached and it's a very difficult thing to grasp sometimes that you know, mostly we can we can do it. I give an example when I train of saying, imagine that there are two parties to a deal and they both need, you know, 51% to, to hit their targets. And you can't have 102% in this deal because it's 100% all you can ever have. So now what you do is you turn that 2% into something tangible, like time or money, and then you grow the deal. So you change you change the whole game if you can't all achieve everything. And that's a very difficult thing to do. You have to quantify it and make it real, you know? Does what's that make sense? Exa- I was just about to ask, what's an example of uh, you changing the deal in your life, whether it's uh, work or just life in general? 
So we'd say, um, we'd look at certainly commercial examples. We'd look at um, taking cost. So say someone needs to make 51% profit and someone needs to sell it at 51 as well. So there's that sort of 2%. And we turn that into money and say, well, what's that actually worth? Is it 2 million, 10 million? And then we find that 10 million, we take cost out or, or we lengthen the, the, the time of the contract maybe, or we grow grow the whole sort of transaction. In terms of, I just think there's so many examples of, of doing it, which I can't say really, but right. you, you're looking to find whatever it is, is is missing, that the thing that gets people to dig their heels in, right, and, and to go no further. What we do is we ask, we sort of have an inquisitive approach as to why. So basically, I guess the, I guess the, the best way of putting it is, what you don't want to do is say that this is my position, right? You need to get underneath the position someone takes on anything at all and find out what we call it the interest behind the position, right? So what is it underneath the stance that someone is taking that makes them take that stance? And it's true of social engineering as well. Why does someone say that? Why is someone sticking to that argument, staying in that position? And if you get underneath the reason, not why, you know, not what they're doing, but why they're doing it, you can just dismantle someone very quickly because you can attack the, the logic behind it as opposed to the position. So we talk about always giving someone an easy way to agree with you. Mm-hmm. So I make it easier for them. So as a social engineer, particularly, I make it easier for the subject, the target. It's easy for them to agree with me and do what I'm suggesting than it is to do anything else. Plus, I'm never going to make them lose face. And and, and if you can do that, you make it easy for someone to agree. People will agree. They like to be led, especially if they're in a, in a state of, what we call cog- cognitive dissonance. So especially if you've introduced confusion, mm-hmm. people just want to come out with the confusion, so you offer them a path. This all sounds very esoteric. Taking on no, it's that's amazing. That, that's really amazing. I, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit. Okay. You know, so you, you you get into these scenarios where maybe you're having a tough conversation. Maybe it's you know employee to employer. Uh, maybe it's spouse to spouse, mm-hmm. something like that, a, a tough discussion. Nonverbals are huge. Nonverbals are probably one of my most favorite aspects of social engineering. Mm-hmm. What are some things that people should be aware of when they're having those conversations and they want to push to the to the point where they're getting their point across, but they don't want to push that person into being defensive? What are what are some of the things that you should be looking for when you need to sort of tone it back or or, or back off? So one of the the things that people so a lot of the time when people talk about nonverbals, they're talking about something called microfacial expressions, which which are to you know they're very useful in certain areas, but when you're looking at applying pressure like you're talking about, it's really it's more fundamental than you might think. So on the one hand, everybody is an individual, and everyone has their own. We call it a Everyone has their own, if you like, non-verbal lexicon, right? So you have your own way of emphasizing words that maybe no one else has, your own way of um, comforting yourself and your stress and things like that. So we're all individuals. 
But for it to be useful, what you need to do is get to people on an absolutely basic level, i.e. the animal that you are, right? So one of the things that I've been speaking about in, in, in talks lately, uh, well, not lately, but before Christmas, <laughs> was we actually use our psychophysiology, right? And so what we're really looking at is how the body reacts under stress. And, and it's those signs of stress that are going to give away how much pressure someone's under. And then what we choose to do, both in a, in, in a negotiation uh, situation, in an interrogation, or uh, should I say interview situation, and also in social engineering, is choose whether or not to let the lid off a little bit and give them a break and let off steam, or whether to keep them under pressure and push. And then it's all about your questioning. So what do we look for? So humans respond to stress um, at a physical level in the same way, okay? So stress is on a, it's, it's, it's on a scale. It goes from being mildly worried and perturbed all the way up to terrified, you know, extreme levels. So what we look for is the responses kind of go freeze first, then flight, then fight and then what we call fright, which I won't talk about now because it's too much. But So most humans under stress will first of all go into the freeze response. And what that tends to mean, so we, some of us do this in different orders, by the way, but what that tends to mean is they tend to stop more. I mentioned earlier their fine motor skills um, tend to be knocked out as the brain processes the threat. And so when we're under stress, we see that the thing that is putting us under stress, we see as the threat. So what we do is our first defense in nature is to become still. And so what we do is we, we stop fidgeting. We tend to sort of get that rabbit in the headlights look about our faces and we tend to flash freeze. And in that you'll see people do it. But what you have to understand is to be able to really see that is it's, it's difficult to be doing anything else ourselves. If you're observing you really shouldn't be leading, all right? So your observ observation is very um, time-consuming and very kind of a uh, heavy thing to do on its own. So the first thing we look for is those kind of pauses. We call it response latency. So how long does it take them to answer questions? Are they taking longer? Are they more still? Are they blinking less? And again, you've got to calibrate in all the caveats I said. From there, people go, the threat's still there, and now I want to run away. So on a, on a like on a, on a mental level within the brain, your brain is saying, get away, get away. And it is sending chemical signals on this occasion to your legs. Right. So starting to pump you with some cocktail of chemicals telling you to get out of there. Right. But you're not moving. OK, so that person wants to get away but they're not moving. So that energy or those chemicals has got to go somewhere. So then people get into the fidget phase and you'll see people getting more and more agitated. So you've gone from sort of no fine motor movement to lots of fine motor movement to the eyes looking at their watch, at the door, at the window, all the exits, a general feeling of being distracted, um, changing the subject, tapping the hands on the table building what we call a literal or figurative wall in front of themselves. So what we'll see is someone under, a, you know, really if we're pushing someone very hard under interrogation, um, they'll start to put the coffee cup in front of themselves, then take the glasses off and the glasses in front of themselves. And then, you know, next to the cup, 
and then the pen. So it's kind of like building a little mini barrier. And we see these sort of fidgeting and everything. The problem is, is your brain is saying there's a threat. You kept still. It's still there. Now get away. But you're not going anywhere. So the body doesn't like it. Your brain essentially takes over. Your animal brain is more powerful at that point. Um, It's a more ancient part of the brain than your rational brain. Right. So the animal brain's going, come on, come on, get out of here. And um, all your fear responses, are, all those synapses are, are opening and signaling move, but you're not moving. Right. And then we go to fight mode and you see people. That's when people get fairly aggressive. That's when they do what we call territorial splaying. Their arms come out to the side. They start to take up more space. They puff out the cheeks. You'll see redness come to the face, the eyes, you know, the pupils will dilate and take in the threat and they'll close the distance. Um, so what they'll do is we call it proxemics. People keep a, you know, a, a standard distance from someone else. But when they're under stress and they're going through these phases of stress, the next thing they do is they start to close that distance. They lean forward. They become more aggressive. You see anger and facial expressions flash across their face. And all of those things are signs of stress. So you need to see a person that's not stressed and then observe them going through those stages. And what we do as negotiators and what you can do, you know, do as someone who's looking at that, is really choose, and this is where manipulation comes in. And I talk to the people who come on my training and say, this is the point you walk between the raindrops, right? Because people do not see it. And what happens is at that point, you can choose whether to just keep that question going. So I've had people say, can we get a bathroom break? Can we get a comfort break? And sometimes I'll say, we'll do that in a few minutes, but I need you to answer the question. Or like, yeah, sure, five minutes and we're going for that break. But right now, can you please go back to what I've just asked you? Or you can say, sure, take your break now. And what you're doing is you are playing that person's emotion, really, and you're seeing that stress and how it's sort of being enacted in that opponent, in that individual, in that target. And you're really controlling whether you let the steam, you know, let the top off or whether you keep it on and keep that person under pressure. And that makes me sound completely evil. No. Wow. I, that was captivating. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, what happened next? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That that's pretty that's pretty fascinating, especially to see that uh full like transition play out. From your from your perspective and being on the negotiator side, it sounds like maybe taking a break might be an opportunity to diffuse some of that stress. Did I hear that right? Or is there other types of things and techniques that you look at to diffuse some of that tension that's building up to the person being kind of interrogated? Yeah. I mean, you let them take a break. You can change the topic. I mean, this is, if you can imagine a conductor with an orchestra, you can put someone under that kind of pressure and then you can you know, you're watching all the time. This is what that, you see, basically with body language as well and with people, just with people, on one level, it's very, very binary, right? People are comfortable or uncomfortable, right? They're, They're relaxed or they're not relaxed. They're truthful or they're deceptive. They're paying attention or they're not paying attention. And so what so what you can do is you can say, well, 
I, I'm looking to to number one, we're looking to observe that state and to work out what that person is. And number two, we're choosing whether to allow them to to continue. And this is why a lot of the stuff, when I say that, I realize how that sounds. And this is why a lot of the stuff that I teach privately, I don't put out as free content. Because you can imagine how dangerous that is if someone really knows what they're doing in these situations. It, 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 I always worry about, about people taking that on board and, 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 you know, really using this powerful stuff because, you, you, yeah, you can let them take a break, you can do, change the subject. But if you're looking at how people respond to specific topics, like, for example, I had a guy and we were interrogating. And um, now I say interrogating, we're not allowed to say that. It's called intensive interview. But I'll give you an example. I was sent in undercover to find out uh, whether this guy was an insider threat. And doing an awful lot of things other than just stealing industrial secrets from, from his company. But was also a predator on other employees, okay, in, in, in every way that you can imagine, really. And one of the things I would say is that this guy's, you know, it turns out this guy is a psychopath, right? A violent psychopath, but very, very good at hiding it. And I mean, it even took me two interviews. So it would have been six hours of questions before even I realized, you know, how dangerous he was and the extent of it. And I was looking for it and trained to find it, right? So what happens is you observe, and he could have spoken to me for any length of time in any amount of detail about his role and his relationship with some of the people I had questions about because he was ready for those things, right? Particularly about how he was as a supervisor and, and you know, his routines of operational routines, locking up the, the premises of the company. So what you're looking for is I'm looking to knock him, knock him uh, off off uh, line, right? I'm looking to get his confidence down and to provoke a reaction. So, so when you say is there other tools, yeah, because what I can do is I can take him to the point where he's about to lose his temper and then take him back to something he's happy to talk about. And you're observing those fluctuations in mood and gesture and and. Um, gait and posture and, and tone of voice and non-verbal utterances and all of those things. I look at 19 different things, all of those things. And so you can let, you can give people pressure by the way that you behave and the way that you talk to them and you can take it away, but more it's about them. And the mistake that people make is, is there something I can do like me to change that person's mood and 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 the answer is you you must focus entirely on the other person right it's about them you mustn't and I say this when I'm training people to be social engineers you mustn't insert yourself into the story it's their story and 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 you've got to observe that if you observe that all you're really doing is is amplifying parts of it and deadening other parts and that's what makes it so powerful Wow, this this is all incredibly fascinating. One thing that I wanted to sort of tag on to the end of what you were just talking about, that, that fluctuation of, of hard versus soft, 
is this concept of good cop, bad cop, right? This has yeah. been, this is in <laughs> comedy movies. This is mm-hmm. in every single law enforcement show. People yeah. use it, try to use it all the time as parents. And, and when you have two people versus, say, a group or, or a single person, they're like, let's do good cop, bad cop. Mm-hmm. Does that actually work in, in real life? <laughs> so it's the most well-known uh, tactic and it is a tactic it's not strategic uh, it's 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 not particularly sophisticated right but it works ju- ju- just on one level due to the halo effect right so you know you the, and the way i talk about it when i teach it is you've got the worst person in the world you know they're grumpy they're unreasonable they're rude they don't believe you you know, and and they really they'll take someone sort of to an emotional edge of of anger or frustration or or you know whatever, and then the, by contrast, the next person looks great, and that next person could still give you a really really bad deal, but just just as the contrast effect of the other person that makes it sound a little bit better, you know, and there are a lot, and so it works to the point that you're more inclined to listen to the second person because the first one's been so awful, but it's not very subtle. And so I taught, you know, I, I don't teach uh, students and we don't, we don't, when we plan to do this on, on, you know, corporate negotiation teams, I always teach them tactics, but I always say, I prefer you didn't use them. This is not football, you know, it's chess, right? You've got to out think people and you've got to be so far ahead to do that and if you're busy focusing on being the good cop and the bad cop someone on the other side is going to absolutely mince you right and I'm gonna I say so I will if you come in and try that shit with me I'm gonna mince you (laughs) you're gonna be and you're and you're gonna go away happy you're gonna go away thinking you've won uh, and not realise that I've done it. I mean, do not play the, that type of game unless it is with kids or whatever, you know. And it, and the con or, or, or by which I mean the consequences are not big, you know. It's, it's all right to experiment and play with that, but the consequences are not big. There's another technique we call the Russian front, and it's taken from one of the wars where they'd offer soldiers soldiers would be told they had to go into battle, and if they refused. You'd say to them, well, that's fine. You don't need to fight today, but we'll send you to the Russian front. And at that time, 99% of soldiers being sent to the Russian front died or some mm. some huge percentage anyway. And so we call it the Russian front. So you offer them this nightmare job. And and, and then you see me, it, it, it relies on the human tendency to make a choice. Psychologically, if you offer people to, you know, a choice, people tend to choose one of the two options so like hey you know do you want to go for pizza or or you know a burger tonight and very few people go well actually i i prefer to eat french food they tend to choose one or the other right, right, right. and so we present uh, a dark you know two bad choices just use the halo effect <laughs> I, i'm just laughing because i i never let i never let them get away with it now Wow. Jenny, this has been absolutely fascinating. Such an awesome conversation. I'm actually going, as soon as we're done, I'm probably going to listen to this conversation again immediately because it was so awesome. Uh, For people that want to stay in touch with you 
and the stuff that you have going on, maybe with the podcast, maybe with your company, what are some ways that people can stay in touch with you? Oh, so you can find me on social media. My tag, if you like, is uh, the People Hacker or People Hacker Human Factor Security Podcast or website. So it would be uh, humanfactorsecurity.co.uk. And yeah, and you'll see me pop up on um, YouTube and, and, and in other places too soon, you might see me pop up. So lots, there was lots planned prior to 2020 um turning out to be such a fantastic year for everyone <laughs> but hopefully we recover and yeah there's lots planned great from the bottom of our hearts thank you so much for taking your time to, to talk with us and we'll see everybody next time thank you so much guys it's been a pleasure hey is someone still there I'm still here. I think we missed something. What did we miss? Oh, the bonus content. Oh, the psychopath story. She didn't get to finish it. Well, let's go ahead and finish it now. So, yeah, just to get back to the guy I was telling you about that um, using those different pressure techniques to like build pressure or take it down. Just, just to tell you where that story ended or sort of as far as I could take it. So I put him under all this pressure. And what became really obvious was that he could talk for any amount of time about operational stuff, as I said. But there were certain aspects of, of, of the case, if you like, that he got very agitated, uh, very angry. Um, and that's what kind of eventually gave him away as being the person he was, which was basically um, a psychopath and certainly a bully and had been abusing um, his colleagues for, for many years in lots of different ways. And just to let you know how that ends, um, or, or briefly, um, I actually had to go into his office late one night. This was a site, very remote site in the in uh, the countryside. No security, no anything. Um, and the management asked me to just go in and look around his office a little bit. Um, and, and again, these are not things that are strictly within the guidelines of any employment law, I guess. <laughs> but they asked me to go in and look around the office, gave me a key, Go and look around the guy's office. Just, just you know, let's finish this thing. It doesn't matter because he's on a business trip to Korea. So I go to his office and I find all kinds of weird stuff. And um, bear in mind, he hates me at this point because I put him under pressure. That had been reported into management, and you know he was, you know, he came under an employee tribunal. They found other stuff, all the evidence built up, and he was out to lose his job. But it doesn't matter because he's in Korea. I'm in his office. It's about 1 a.m. There's no one else in the parking lot. And I'm looking around. And I'm finding weird things. I'm finding keys, um, scraps of people's clothes. I mean, lots of very strange things that he'd taken from his colleagues. Um, and whilst I was in there, I saw his car pull up into the, car, into the parking lot. And he wasn't in Korea. He would have known someone was in his office. The light would be on. Uh, yeah, and I had to, I had to get out of there very quickly. And, and I, I, you know, with him behind me, but I got out on foot. And I mean, in a dark building at night, I, I backed myself right. But, um, but yeah, it's very powerful stuff, is what I'm saying. It puts people under. You can put people under an immense amount of pressure with just these psychological and verbal techniques. Although doing it to someone who's a, clearly a psychopath probably isn't a great idea, right?